to study. So God, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for the confidence and the hope of salvation that you've given to us. Lord, we know that this world is not our home, that our home is with you. And we're pilgrims passing through. And as our brother is getting ready to graduate to be with you, and we would ask that, that you would be with the family during this time of, of grief and sorrow and saying goodbyes. Lord, uh, you will be deeply missed. If you would be gracious, Father, to, to let them rally, then we'll take that. If you're ready to take them home, then we'll honor that. Lord, may you be a comfort and strength to all. We do thank you, God, for the opportunity to celebrate also Lorraine Minicle on Saturday. May we be a blessing to that family and others. Lead us, Holy Spirit, we pray, as we enter into your presence and we give praise to you. And we think about all the hosannas that we'll be singing at the foot of your throne and in the presence of myriads and myriads of angels. May we join them now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
the day. In your presence, all our fears are washed away. Sing that again. Because when we see you, because when we see you, we find strength to face the day. In your presence, all our fears are washed away. Washed away. Hosanna, Hosanna, you are the God who saves us, worthy of all our praises. Hosanna, Hosanna, come have your way among us, we welcome you here, Lord Lord, we welcome you here tonight. Be glorified in everything that we say and do this evening. We love you, Lord, and we know that there's joy to be found with you. Father, give us your blessing this evening as we approach your throne. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. Here we go. We worship. We worship the God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. My God, He holds the victory. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. Shout out your praise, there's joy in the house of the Lord, our God is surely in his place, and we won't be quiet, we shout out your praise. We sing, we sing to the God who heals, we sing to the God who saves, we sing to the God who always makes a way. He hung upon that cross And He rose up from that grave My God Still rolling stones away There's joy in the house of the Lord There's joy in the house of the Lord today And we won't be quiet Though we shout out your praise There's joy in the house of the Lord Our God is surely His place we shout out your praise. We were the beggars, and now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, and now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. So we were the beggars, but now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, and now.
join me. Joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. We shout out your
stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night. I see the work of your hands. Galaxies spinning a heavenly dance, oh God, all that you are, so overwhelming. I hear the sound of your voice, all at once it's a gentle and thundering noise, oh God, all that you are, so overwhelming. Delight myself in you, captivated by your beauty. I'm overwhelmed, I'm overwhelmed by you. And God, I run into your arms, unashamed because of mercy. I'm overwhelmed, I'm overwhelmed. Forgiven and free forever, you'll be my God. All that you've done is so overwhelming. I delight myself in you, in the glory of your presence. I'm overwhelmed, I'm overwhelmed by. before you, not worthy in any way to stand before your throne, 
except for the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, nothing we are, nothing we've done, nothing we have makes us worthy to be in the presence of your holiness. It's only by your grace and the blood of Jesus that we can stand here tonight worshiping you freely, openly. Lord, we pray tonight for all those around the world that cannot stand openly and freely. They're under persecution. Lord, we lift them to you. We ask that you lift their hearts so that they can stand in their hearts right before you and praise you with all that they are. Lord, we pray for everything that's going on in the Middle East, that your will would be done and that your people would be protected. Lord, we pray for tonight, for here in Columbia County, for right here in this church, that lives would be changed, that we would be changed. Lord, not with them, but with us. May I be changed. Make that our prayer tonight, Lord. Father, we praise you. We love you. And we bow before your throne. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. That was amazing. When you think about being able to worship and when we're in that, that, that place of worship, we are joining myriads and myriads of angels and believers and all those before the throne of God. Well, I want to welcome you guys. If you would, open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We didn't quite get as far as, as I wanted to last week, and we were reviewing the qualifications for elder. This is a pastor, what's called a pastoral epistle, or epistle meaning letter, that Paul was writing to his young son in the faith, Timothy. And he was writing to him because Timothy had gone on to Ephesus to try to square the church up. Paul had spent about three years in Ephesus teaching in establishing the church, he warned the church that when he leaves, when he met with the elders in Miletus, he said, watch out, there's going to be some wolves, some people that are going to come from without, but even from within. And the church of Ephesus, the Ephesians church was, was huge in a sense that uh, it was a, a big melting pot and, and a lot of work went into it. And Paul was very well vested in that. He sent Timothy back to kind of square things up and to reestablish the church. Now, you've got to think about this as we'll cover this a little bit later in the chapter. You're sending a guy that might be in his late 20s, early 30s, that's going to a big metropolis church. It would be kind of like sending one of our you know, 28-year-olds into Portland and say, go fix Portland. Will that work? <laughs> we, we want you to go fix all the churches in Portland. You're going to go square them all up. Would that be a daunting task? For sure it would be. And what had happened is the false teaching had come in and infiltrated the church, even though Paul had so much invested in it, that they corrupted even the leadership and the structure of the church. And so Timothy was going to have to go back and teach. And so we walked through Paul's instructions concerning um, Timothy and the qualifications of the elders, the presbyteros. Then we're going to go into deacons, and we're going to kind of work through Really, it's a letter on how the church should conduct itself. And so he gives to, to Timothy these marching orders. And, and Paul had every intent of trying to get there. But Paul's very practical. He's like, if I can't get there, you know, because there's like all these people that want to arrest him and kill him and all these things. So if I can't get there, I'm going to send 
send Timothy. I'm going to send this letter to try to get it going. So we're going to see a lot in, in our study tonight. We're going to take a look at deacons. We're going to take a look at Paul's words to Timothy himself. We're going to take a look at widows and some of these other things. So we're going to dive right in, picking up where we left off in these, these qualifications of the overseers. Now, keep in mind, in, in church polity or how church is structured, from a biblical standpoint, the leadership is, is what's called a plurality of leaders or plurality of elders. And so in the eldership, they're the spiritual leaders, the diakonos, the deacons. They're spiritual, but they're also handling mostly the functional things that are going on. And Paul had already gone over with Timothy this whole list of presbyteros, or the spiritual leaders and teachers within this. And now he's going to get into deacons. And as we study this, and in my understanding of basically the way the church body works, there's pretty much three categories. There are the elders, the spiritual leaders that are there, and they're teaching. And you could be an official elder or unofficial elder, but you're one that fulfills those roles of spiritual teaching, oversight, and such, shepherding the flock. And then you have the deacons that are the doers. Those are the spiritual leaders, but they're actually helping facilitate a lot of the needs. And then you have those that are the, the new in faith that just come to faith, and they're trying to get their feet under them. You're going to fall in one of the three categories that's there. Now, if you've been a Christian for a good period of time and you're not doing anything, in all fairness, you're lazy. Because you should be. If you're, everyone should, should achieve or strive to that position within the body of Christ to serve the body of Christ. And so within this, this is where you guys that maybe go, well, you know, I'm not much of a teacher. I'm not much of a, of a spiritual oversight, but I really can do stuff. This, is, this applies to you. And there's a lot of different deacon things that can be done that's not elder things that can be done, but it is no less of a qualified position. A deacon is just as important. They are not second-class leaders. So please get that out of your mind. They're a leader of a different kind within this. So in, in picking up with verse 8 that we take a look at this, he says, Deacons, likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine, fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, these men must also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and, and a good uh, manager of their children and their household. For these, for those those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standard and a great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. So one of the things that, that we see first and foremost is this phrase, deacons likewise. Now when you see that, what do you think? Deacons likewise. Likewise what? At the same quality of eldership. So, so you, you, you hold yourself that same quality of eldership within this. It's, a, it's a, a two-pronged approach. And so within this, one of the things that's unique about the deacon that's not so quickly seen about the elder is the deacon's spirituality and spiritual maturity is actually revealed through their acts of service. If you're faithful with a little bit, you get more. You get, you, you get a little bit more, and we'll take a look at um, some of the deacons that are there. So when we think about the deacons... And, and that spiritual act of service, 
can waiting tables or wiping these tables or serving food in the kitchen, is, is, is that a spiritual service? Sure it is. Absolutely it is. It's taking care of a need within the body of Christ. For example, when we take a look at first deacons, the first really good example of the deacons are those that are in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, it says this. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men, note, good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, and these were brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid hands on them. And what did they do? They took care of the Grecian widows. Well, one of the things that you find about that is they, they, they found Gentiles to minister to the, the Hellenists that were there, so they found them like kind. But did you catch the spiritual qualification? Stephen, a man full of what? Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Holy Spirit. It means that he was spiritually equipped, he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was ready to meet the needs because it is how you can compassionately meet needs for other people. Is, is that spiritual act of service that is there. We know that Philip would later become an evangelist. But where did he start? He started in the deacon role within this. Is he meant to be a table waiter all the time? No. But what was happening was the work had become so much amongst the growing congregation that the disciples couldn't leave the study and the prayer of the Word in order to take care of these these physical needs that are there. There's only so much time in a day. And so if I had to not prepare for Sunday morning or prepare for Wednesday night and go mow the yards out here, you're not going to get much of a Bible study. I'm going to hand you a chapter and say, here, read it, figure it out on your own. But if somebody has the gift of, of service and just loves to serve and, and can get on the lawnmower and pray while they're lawn mowing, right? That works. There are some people that have gifts of hospitality, our food service people that, that feed us every Wednesday night. You guys are a blessing. Our funeral ministry people. I'm up here serving on one aspect, but our funeral ministry people are, are taking care of uh, those people that have need with the food services and the janitorial services and all these things. And, and so when we think about that, it is a compilation of, of everybody in the body meeting those needs as God gifts and as God leads. That's why I say, if you're gifted in teaching and, and, and discipling and spiritual um, discipleship and those things, and, the, and if you've got the gifts to be able to do that or evangelize, that's what you should do. If you don't know what your gifting is, start serving someplace and watch God bring those gifts forward into what you can do within that. One of the things that I think it's important to see here, though, is that you don't lay hands on any man suddenly. And both in verse 10 of, of chapter 3, he says that 
Likewise, the deacon and the elder should be tested. It's, it's much harder, it's much easier to say no to somebody, I don't think that's necessarily your gift, than to get them in and say, uh, that's not really your gift. You know, I, I could ask somebody, I could ask one of you, and I could pick on one of you and call you out by name and say, here, come here, I want you to teach the rest of the service. And you're going to look at me and say, nope, no thank you very much. Within that. Some people might do it and you go, uh, that's, you know, teaching is not your gifting. Within that. I can tell you this, singing is not my gifting. You don't want to hear it. Coyotes sound better than me. So, so we have Eric who comes and joins us and to be able to do that because that's his gifting. That's, what, that's how God has wired him to be able to be in, in, in that place. And so when the body of Christ is working the way that they are gifted and serving, whether in elders or in deacons or in teaching or in, or in meeting needs of others, then the body is running on all cylinders. You don't find bleachers in heaven. You really don't. You, you, you need to be in the game with this. So how do we know? Well, one of the things is, if you look at the, the spiritual qualifications, and it, just like in, in mentioned earlier, he says that they have to be men worthy of respect. Now, we talked about this last week on should women be um, elders. And we, we spent that, that good long time. So if you, if you want to figure out where it is, it's interesting because if you picked up the text here, it talks about men being deacons and women being deacons because they're not exercising spiritual oversight over men. It's a service. But in, in the men deacons part, I love how specific Paul is. He says that these men need to be worthy of respect or men of dignity, just like the elders. And a person of clean moral reputation, Philippians 2.15 says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of, note, a crooked and perverse generation among you as pure as lights in the world. If we have one of our, our uh, ushers that's greeting people and handing out bulletins, and they're handing out bulletins and greeting people as they're coming in, but, but this guy spends a lot of time down, you know, some place where he's not supposed to be, a place of ill repute, you know, and, and you happen to see the person coming, this usher coming out of this place of ill repute. What would you think about that person? And think about the qualification with that. We serve a living God and we serve the body of Christ. We need to be above reproach. We need to be people of dignity within that. We need to check ourselves within this, in this act of service, not giving the enemy any room for accusation. And so a deacon has to hold themselves to the same standard as the elders do. Notice how he says, men of dignity and not double-tongued or literally two-faced or doesn't live under false pretenses within that. In other words, you act one way here and then you act totally different at home. It should be consistent within that. And in interviewing deacons or interviewing elders, maybe one of the things we should do is interview the wives and the kids. Maybe we should interview the neighbor next door. How much yelling is going on in that house? He goes on and he says, not addicted to, to too much wine. And, and again, we covered it quite a bit, whether or not an elder could drink or, or a deacon can drink within that. And in neither case, it doesn't say abstinence. The, the word here that is given to us is paranoinon, 
And it literally means one who habitually drinks or drinks too much for the purpose of becoming drunk. So it's not abstinence, but it's the intent. And it's the per- person that, that drinks too much. And even though you could, you've got to ask the question, should I? But we think about how drunkenness has ruined so many lives and so many reputations. So while, while it's lawful, is it the best thing that you can do? And sometimes the answer would be no. It isn't the best thing to do. But the disqualifier would be not just the alcohol, but I believe the substance abuse of any kind. You know, in, in, in Paul's day, they didn't have fentanyl. They didn't have meth. They didn't have all these other things. But in our day, we have all of these things. Say, well, I don't drink alcohol, but I do meth. Sorry, that doesn't qualify you. That doesn't work. I got some friends that have a special program for you, and we're going to hook you up with them. Because you can't lead somebody when you're controlled by something other than the Holy Spirit. It's difficult. Not fond of sordid gain, as he goes on, and, and he says this love of money within this, or greedy. And as I said last week, ministry is not the place for you to, uh, to look to get rich. But if you think about the deacons, often the deacons are the ones that are handling the offering. Can you think of somebody out of the 12 disciples who fulfilled a deacon role for Jesus that handled the money? His name was what? It was a deacon role. And what did the love of money do for him? He sold Jesus out for it. Within this. And so it was a flaw for him. And for 30 pieces of silver, he sold out his Savior. So we look at that. So this role of deacon, and it should be true for elders, but I, again, I say deacons most importantly because they're the ones. We have policies here at our church. We have uh, an audit committee that meets. They're deacons, and they're the ones that, that check out what our finances do. We have, we have a, a deacon of finances that check things out. We have the ability to be able to record tithes and offerings. And only one person knows who gives what. The only person. Nobody else knows within that. We, when we take up an offering, it, it, we have policy for two ushers to, to carry the money and to go put it away. And it's documented in all of these different things. Why? Because the love of money can corrupt and I don't know how many times we've seen ministries fall because of money issues or the pursuit of these monies. And so how do we know the person's going to be a good deacon? Well, take a look at their business life. Take a look at how they handle finances, if they're a businessman or whatever they, they do. We need to take a look at that. Another aspect of deacons is that we hold, verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, this is an interesting statement. Holding the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. That word mystery is mysterion. And in Greek, and it means that which is hidden is now revealed. Okay? So what is the thing that was hidden that's now revealed that I have to hold on to with a clear conscience? Well, can you think of the two rival factions that were going on in Paul's day? And the people that were coming around trying to undermine Paul's ministry, they were what? The Judaizers. And then you had the Gentiles. Was there a faction between the Jews and the Gentiles? Sure there was. And what was the problem that the Jews had with Gentiles being saved? They didn't think they should be. They didn't think they should be. They thought they were the the chosen race. 
And the fact that a Gentile would come to faith was creating a bias and a schism within that. Now, if you were a deacon or an elder and you had a schism or a bias against a, a, a people group, an ethnos, would that be a problem in the way you minister? Hence the problem of Acts 6, where there was a division between how the Hellenistic widows and the, and the Jewish widows were being taken care of within that. Can you see where there would be a favoritism or a bias? So you have to, he says, you have to hold, the, especially in service, you hold the mystery of faith and the fact that the Gentiles and the Jews are all brought together in one body as Christ. And there is no room for cultural prejudice. Could you think about cultural prejudices that we have today? I can. What would you think about a couple of, uh, of homeless people that come in and they sit in the front row? Would you treat them differently? Would you go, oh, oh. What would you think about some kids that, that, that might show up on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night and they got piercings or tattoos or whatever? I used to say that there was a collision of the blue hairs. You know what the collision of the blue hairs are? It's like when the old people used to dye their hair blue and then the young people would dye their hair blue and then they couldn't get along together. That doesn't work so much anymore because older people like to dye their hair pink and purple and all these other colors. So. And the younger people stopped dyeing their hair because all the old people ruined it for them. There's no shock value left. But, but you think about prejudice. Can a deacon be prejudiced in their acts of service? The answer is what? No. No, you can't be prejudiced. You can't be prejudiced to them. You hold the mystery of faith, and the mystery of faith is that God wants everyone to be saved, regardless of, of, of race, of gender, of, of where they come out of society within that. And everyone should be served equally within this. And so Paul was telling Timothy, you've got to pick somebody that's not going to be biased. Now, and they should be tested. But then you get into the deaconesses that are there. Verse 11. Women, likewise. Likewise what? Likewise the elders. Likewise the male version of the deacons. Likewise this is women. But he specifically points out some characteristic flaws or, or, or traps that women might fall into. He says women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, uh, but temperate, faithful in all things. Well, one of the things that dignified, if you're coming out of the Grecian culture and out of Ephesus, would there be a problem as a, a woman that's coming out of the Grecian culture in Ephesus, would there be a problem in the way she dresses? Most probably. Because they would dress a little bit more showy and a little bit, you know, more ostentatious or whatever the case is. So, so women, you know, when you're coming out of that, that secular culture, you need to be able to tone it down a little bit. Be dignified. But it's not just in the peril, it's in the persona. To be dignified, to, to, to be in that place within that. Um, to show dignity and be of, of dignity. And again, the same as the men, above reproach. But then he says, no gossips. Now, gossip is an interesting thing because you don't see it in the men's side, either in the elders or in the deacons, do you? But you see it in the women. Why? 
Do women like to gossip? Yes. Women, shake your head yes. Just, just go ahead and go with it. Because I know y'all. I have daughters. Woman walks into the room, and what's the first thing that the woman does? She sizes her up. Right? Or there's the idea of talking, or, you know, did you know, and all of these things. And gossip is a, is a horrible, horrible sin. And if you're going to be in a position of leadership, you need to not gossip. You need to be trusted with what you learn and not to spread it. And gossip is interesting because gossip is anytime you share information that changes the attitude of one person about another. Do you know that you can share a truth and that's gossip? If you share a truth about somebody that was not yours to share, that changes the opinion of one person about the other person that you're talking about, you're gossiping. For a while there, we had in the bathrooms, we had this word, think. Have you ever seen the acronym? Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Think before you speak. Is it true? Well, it might be true. Is it helpful? No, it's not helpful. Stop right there. Well, it might be helpful. Is it inspiring? Oh, no, it's not inspiring. Stop right there. Is it necessary? Uh, no, it's not really. I just want to share. Is it kind? Think before you speak. Is it truthful? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? We need to, to check that. Because one of the things is that ends up with gossip is it creates this influence where people talk about other people. And it was a challenge. Paul would challenge these women because it was apparently a problem in Ephesus. How do we know it was a problem in Ephesus? He tells us in 1 Timothy 5, 13 to 15. Check it out. It says, at the same time, they also learned, talking about the women, the widows, uh, they learned the young widows specifically. At the same time, they also learned to be idle. They go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Gossip. We think about this idea of gossip. Do you know what the word gossip is in Greek? Diablos. Diablos. Diablos is the word for gossip. And Paul says to Timothy, these deaconesses should not be diablos. Satan is the chief slanderer. When he brings accusations against you before God, what is he really doing? Gossiping. He's slandering or gossiping about you to God to try to change God's opinion about you. Can that happen? No, but he's still doing it. We should not gossip. And that goes to the men too. A woman should be temperate, which means sober thinking. And, 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 and literally self-control or sensible. Titus 2.2 says, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance, and so balanced in these things. Faithful in all things. I love the fact that for these women, he says, faithful in all things. But again, it goes to the men. It's a likewise. It's both. Not flaky. 
Husband and one wife, back to the deacons, or literally a one-woman man. And I think you're going to apply to the other thing for the deaconesses. That, that you're not running around chasing, chasing after men, and men are not chasing after women, but you're to be focused for the deacons there to have their household managed well. Same as the elder. And we covered it a bit at the end of last week, but what does it really mean? Well, it means that your household is a microcosm of what you would do at church. So the question is, are they going to be a good deacon? Well, ask the questions. How do they manage their household finances? How do they manage the relationships with their spouse? How do they manage their children? Are their children in subjection? What kind of steward are they with God's provision? And keeping your children in subjection, again, it's the same rule as I shared last week. That as long as the kids are living in your house, regardless of the age... They are your responsibility to keep them in subjection as unto the Lord. Once they move out of your house, all bets are off. They're on their own. But you have to manage them. And so if I have a 25-year-old kid, that son that is couch surfing and not doing anything, and I can't manage him, I can't disciple him, I can't do these other things, how am I going to manage the house of God? It's not going to happen. And what happens so many times is the substitute. I can't manage my own house and I can't do all these things. So I'm going to go to church and I'm going to do all of this work at the church and feeling that that will qualify me while my household is becoming a shipwreck. Is that right or wrong? Wrong. We need to, we need to start at our own house. Get our house in order before we can be in that place. Paul closes this teaching with verse 13. And he says this, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's a job well done. Why? Because you're serving according to the gifts that God has given to you. There is nothing better than hitting your stride with your spiritual gifts and acts of service. Nothing better. But if you're in the wrong place doing the wrong thing, it is a grind. But when you're in the right place doing the right thing, then the body functions and it works and the body grows. And, it, and, and it's a blessing to the body and it's a blessing to you. And it's an honor to God. And I would say the only thing cautioning any person from becoming and entering into deaconship or serving would just be the fact that one of these qualities needs work. And they need to grow and they need to mature. To perfection... No. Show me a perfect elder. You going to find it? No. You going to find a perfect deacon? Nope. We're all works in progress. But the key is a work in progress. That you're putting forth the effort with that. Paul goes on and, and he closes out chapter 3 with really his heart for the church within this. Look at verses 14 to 16. He says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed like shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, or something else that happens, I don't know. I'll write to you, and you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, and believed on in the world, and taken up for glory. How does Paul end this? He says, first of all, I want to be with you guys. 
Why? Ephesus, I think out of all of the churches, Ephesus was Paul's baby. It was the one he was the most passionate about. And he wanted to get there and fix it. But again, because Ephesus was threatened by heresy and apostasy that was going on, he sent Timothy because he didn't want the, the place to become shipwrecked. And so that's why he says, but in case I'm delayed, I'm writing this to you on how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God. That's corporate worship. There are people today that are leaving the churches by droves saying, I don't have to go to church to be part of a, a, a faith community in that. That's, that's not biblical. Corporate gathering and corporate worship is the center of the body of Christ. It's where we gather together and we support one another. And how we conduct, each, conduct ourselves in that is imperative. To be able to do it the right way, to support. I've talked with so many people who say, well, I don't want to go to church because all you do is fight. I don't want to go to the church because all you do is argue. I don't want to go to church because I'm going to be judged. I don't want to go. And they have all of these excuses. But what would it be like if we really lived out the love and care and the kindness of the body of Christ to the world? They should be kicking down the doors to get in because it's a place of safety, the place of encouragement, the place of kindness and gentleness. And so what he says is, is this, we need to be focused. Now, it doesn't mean that we need to um, condone sin, but we do need to be welcoming and encouraging and having good conversations and holding to, as Paul says, the pillars of faith. You think about a pillar. What does a pillar do? If you had a bunch of pillars, what does it do? It holds the what? Holds the house up. Holds the roof up. But if the pillars are flawed or cracked or whatever, what's going to happen? House is going to come down within this. And so relativism is a toxic poison where relativism deludes the truth. There are many so-called churches in the world today that are trying to be relative within that. And they're deluding the truth. And as a result, the pillars of the church are failing. What would happen if Timothy became just relative to the teachings that were going on in Ephesus with all the idolatry? Hey, you know, Paul, it's really hard to like hold to the truth here. There's so many different faiths. Let's just go ahead and let's welcome them all. Would that work in Ephesus? No. It would be horrible within this. But that was the challenge because the heresy and the Judaizers were coming in. And people try to create their own idea of truth. So Paul established these biblical leaders to fight for the truth, to be the pillar. You know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillars that support the truth. If you have an opportunity, you can check out uh, a guy by the name of David Tall. He's been on my Facebook page. He's a tour guide. Um, that is actually in Israel today. And he is dedicated. He's a retired tank commander from the IDF. And he's dedicated himself to just about every day broadcasting the truth of what's going on in Israel today. Why? Because lies and deceptions are being broadcast out to, to taint people's hearts against the nation of Israel. And he says, I'm going to hold to the pillar of truth. As a Christ follower, we've got to hold to the pillar of truth. For the gospel. And we have to make the, the, the essentials of the truth there to hold up what? The faith community. But if the church deludes the truth, 
the faith community will crumble. How many churches do we see crumbling today? A lot. Why? Because they're watering down the Word. When they don't open their Bibles, when they don't teach from the Word of God the truth, the house of the living God crumbles and the building falls because it's made up of people. So in general, we need to have a lifestyle that's above reproach. We need to be holy. Our wives need to be chaste. We need to be respectful. The leaders need to be respectful. And we need to have a common confession. And so what does Paul do? He actually takes part of a hymn that was sung out in the early church and writes it in this letter. The hymn is here. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up from glory. That was part of a hymn. You say, well, how do you know? Because when you look at it in the Greek, it's written in the chiasm, which is a form of poetry to create a point within this. And it was a hymn that was sung. What is the pillar of faith? It's all centered on Jesus, who is the pillar. He says, this is the non, or this is the essential that cannot be diluted at all. So what does he say? Basically this, this, this mystery of godliness that's revealed through Jesus, a simple declaration, note, was revealed in the flesh. Who was that? Jesus, in the incarnation. And the word became flesh, John 1.14. Dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 1 John 3, 5. And we know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. 1 John 3, 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. But the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. If you remove the incarnation of Jesus, is there any gospel? Can the gospel stand? Absolutely not. So a pillar of faith is the incarnation of Jesus. If anyone denies the incarnation of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus, they have a crumbling faith. The second element is the affirmation of Jesus as the Son of God. Notice he says, vindicated in the Spirit. What does he mean by that? Jesus was vindicated in the Spirit when Jesus was declared as the Son of God at baptism, in the presence of the, the Holy Spirit and His Father. In Isaiah 42, 1 says this, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations, vindicated by spirit. Matthew three seventeen. And behold, a voice out of heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am what? Well pleased. Vindicated in His Spirit. Jesus is the Son of God, who came in the flesh, affirmed by the Spirit of God and the Father at baptism, witnessed by angels. Notice he says, seen by angels, witnessed by angels. How many angelic appearances announced who Jesus was and that he was here? You think about it. You got Mary with the angel Gabriel in the birth announcement to the shepherds in Bethlehem, the ministering angels that attested to it at his temptation, the angels announcing his resurrection at the tomb, and the angels announcing his ascension into heaven. So you have angelic beings that are affirming that Jesus is the Son of God. Then you have the proclamation ministry of Jesus, where he says, proclaiming among the nations, what? The gospel. Jesus had a proclamation ministry while he was here. And it went on through the proclamation ministry of the disciples as he commissioned the disciples to go forward. 
with the results. What are the results? Proclaiming among the nations and the believed on in the world or this faith in Jesus as in the world. And many were believed and saved. Finally, in the enthronement of Jesus, taken up in the seven and seated on his throne in heaven. What is the pillar of faith in the church? Jesus. The totality of the incarnation from incarnation to enthronement. That is the pillar of the church. That's non-negotiable. That's what we hang on to. And Paul tells Timothy, that is what you have to keep as the pillar of the church in Ephesus. And that's what we have to keep as the pillar of the church here within that. And then Paul goes on. Why did he need to make this declaration? Because of the apostasy. Notice in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. He says, but the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, by means of hypocrisy, and liars seared in their own consciousness as with a branding iron. Men who forbid in marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be grateful, shared in by those who believe and know the truth, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is, what? Received with gratitude, for it is set apart or sanctified, hagios, by means of the word of God and prayer. So what does he say? Well, first of all, he says in later times, there's going to be a falling away or an apostasy. Question. Do we see that today? When you take a look at the national average of believers, Christians, born-again Christians in the United States, it has been declining rapidly. In fact, the latest Barna statistic has us below 50%. I think the recent number was 46%. And I believe it even to be lower than that when we talk about that. We are a post-Christian nation. Europe was that a long time ago. There are people that are walking away. There are people that are not coming to faith. And the church is, is shrinking. Why? Because of doctrines of demons. Because of these false teachings that are going on. Notice he says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit says this will happen. These, these heresies. Timothy was being warned by Paul of the heresies that were coming in. The Holy Spirit was warning Paul, saying, tell Timothy, watch out. It's interesting because the Greek word for uh, apostasy is epistemi, which means to abandon a former relationship or association. It's interesting. Apostasy, to abandon a former relationship or association, to turn away from God who has shown grace for another kind of teaching. That's epistemi. To abandon a former relationship. Do we see that today? Yes. How many people do you know that once were walking with God that are no longer walking with God? Why? Well, we've got to take a look and ask the question, what is the source of the apostasy? Deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons. What are they doing? They're writing new narratives and deceiving people and blinding them within that. It's demonic. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 and 15 says this, For such men are false, false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. These hypocrites, these liars, and, and it's interesting because the other word says, have seared their conscience. Again, that Greek word is amazing because the, the word is 
Costariazo. And it literally means to carterize. To carterize. What do you do when you carterize a wound? You burn it and you stop the bleeding. You kill it within them. To, to do that, you know, you, you, you deaden it. And so what happens is this doctrine of demon is deceiving those that once had some kind of a relationship or, or affiliation with God, searing their hearts so that they turn away from that relationship and they go past feeling. And they start believing things that are just whacked. I don't know if there's a Greek word for whacked, but there should be. People that are believing stuff that and buying into stuff that is just... You, you, you ask somebody, you, how, do, how, do you, how do you believe this? It's insane. Some of the things that people have bought into... And it's because some demonic force has diluted them and, and hardened their heart and people doing the things. You know, again, and, and, and some of the stuff that's going on in Israel with Hamas. I heard the account, and this might be a little graphic and I apologize, but um, I do want to share it because I think it's, it's very important. One of, they're, they're, they have these uh, people in Israel and they wear a green uniform and their job, because in Israeli culture, in order to bury somebody, you have to bury them quickly and you bury, you take their whole body. You need everything. So right now there's these guys in the, in the green, like jumpsuits that are going out and they're collecting the people that die. And this one guy that was so traumatized, he went to go pick up this body and it was a body of a pregnant woman who had been shot into the back and when he flipped her over, she was cut open and the child was stabbed. This is what's going on. And when I heard that, it, it, it was appalling. How do you do that? It is demonic. It is demonic. And in Hamas's agenda, it is for the extermination of Israel. It is demonic. But it was happening in, in Israel's day even before Jesus came. When they would take their babies and they would go and they would heat the, the altar of Moloch, the bronze statue, and they would take their firstborn child and lay it in the arms, a living baby in the arms of a bronze statue that was superheated to, to burn that child. How do you do that? Doctrines of demons. So what do we need to do? Stand is the pillar of truth. People are going to believe all kinds of things. Paul specifically says two. Forbidding in marriage. Forbidding in marriage. Do you know that forbidding in marriage is a doctrine of a demon? Think about it. Who instituted the, the covenant of marriage? God. For what purpose? To create a people unto himself. A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two become one flesh. And they will be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. Right? That was the plan. What happens when you destroy the institution of marriage and there is no longer a husband and a wife coming together and having children? You destroy 
the church. You destroy the believers. You destroy the procreation. You basically wipe it out. And you remove every concept of covenant relationship, which God had established for us to be in covenant relationship with Jesus. He said on the night before he died, he took the cup. He says, this cup represents the new covenant. Covenant binds us together with God. But on the very, very planet that we live, when you tear apart covenants and there are no covenants, even in the simplest form in a house between a husband and a wife, there are no covenants. There's nothing binding within that. And then when you get into all the other stuff that's along with it, getting rid of marriage and everything that's there, one of the other things that they were doing in Paul's day, as, as Paul's writing to Timothy, was they had this super elitism. Hey, I'm going to be really holy and I'm going to be celibate. I'm not going to have any kids. No, that doesn't make you holy. The other thing he says, forbidding and eating foods. Certain foods. And again, the Judaizers were coming around saying, we're not going to meet, eat meat offered aisles. We're going to be these holy people. We're going to stay away from these foods. And they said, as if it could make you even more holy. Can, can, if I stop eating In-N-Out Burger, is that going to make me more holy? No. Might make me more healthy. Not more holy. But the idea that some kind of ascetic lifestyle is going to make you more holy, a monastic lifestyle is going to make you more holy, is hogwash. It, it, it doesn't within that. Nor does legalism. So the truth is, that's the deception. So what's the truth? Verse 4. For everything created by God is what? Good. So I can have my in and out. No, everything that God created is good and for our enjoyment. But there's a couple of conditions. One, enjoy it with a grateful heart. Two, sanctify it with the word of God and truth. In other words, it's only good and good to be used if God qualifies it as good. And you pray and say, all right. And I got to thinking about it. Where did we get the idea of being able to pray over our food? I think it lands here. When we're about ready to enjoy something really good, we can give God thanks for it. And we can pray within that. And so we need to understand that, that the whole idea is whatever we're enjoying that God created, we enjoy it as unto the Lord. Romans fourteen six. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord. He who gives thanks to God and he who eats not for the Lord does not eat and give thanks to God. In other words, if you're whatever you're doing, you're doing it as unto the Lord. Right? Which will guard you against overindulgence and all the things that you shouldn't do. And just enjoy them and avoid the legalism. Paul moves on and says gives us the, the encouragement as a minister, verses six through sixteen. He says, in pointing these things out to brethren, you will be... Now, he's talking... This is his personal part to Timothy. Pointing these things out to the brethren, you'll be a good servant or minister of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine which you have been following. For you have nothing to do, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Paul wrote that, not me, so don't get mad at me. And, and on the other hand, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness, for the bodily discipline is only profitable, uh, is only of little profit. 
But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. Prescribe and teach these things, and let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Show yourself as an example to those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophet, prophetic utterances, the laying on of hands and the presbytery. And take pains with these things. Be, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. And pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. In other words, Timothy, be a good minister. What's the first thing he does in verse 6? Take care of yourself spiritually. What is your first priority? Your spiritual relationship before you ever try to do anything else. You've got to spend time with God. You cannot give what you don't have. And to be a good minister, you've got to spend time in the Word. Paul reminds Timothy about the law, the grace, the salvation, spiritual conduct, all of these other things to remind himself within this. And then he says, look at work on yourself and reject these worthless fables that are there within the stay out of these worldly rabbit tails or, as he says, these myths, legendary things, these debates. One of the things that I think is super important in, in the pastoral ministry is that I need to be so focused on the Word of God that I'm not involved with all the other stuff that can get me off track. That's dangerous. I can study Mormonism. I can study world religions. I can study all these things. But I only have so much gray matter in my head. I'm kind of limited. So what I need to do is focus on what I need to do, and that's staying in the Word of God within this. And I need to stay away from these, these fables and some of these things that would, that would cause you to run amok within this. One of the things that Paul makes a, a statement against in contrast is these old women who were undisciplined that would get into these fables and these endless debates and genealogies and all these things that had nothing better to do, as we'll see with the widows, that had nothing better to do at their time just, but just to get together and gossip and debate within this. And I know people that like to debate theology, but I can tell you this. De, de, for one Christian to debate theology with another Christian doesn't really work. And here's the reason why. You're arguing out of pride. Who's going to be right? You're not arguing to gain from each other. You're arguing out of pride. Better you find somebody and spend that time discipling them, giving them the word within this. Verses 7 and 8, he says, discipline yourself for godliness. It's interesting that word discipline is gymnazo. What does it sound like? Gym. Exercise yourself. Control yourself through personal discipline. He says a physical exercise is profitable for a little. And that's true. Why? It's only profitable for this life. But spiritual exercise is profitable for this life and eternal life. Hebrews 12, 11 says, All discipline for a moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields peaceful fruit in righteousness. So what do we need to do? We need to discipline ourselves. So let's put it in context of what it really looks like. 
There's two ways to lose weight. <laughs> You're like, shut up, Carrie. You can alter your eating habits and, and eat healthy and exercise and do those things. And over a long period of time, change a lifestyle. Or you can go on a crash diet and only eat top ramen and water. And you'll lose a lot of weight really fast. But over the long time, when the, you're done with the top ramen, what do you do? You end up going back to it. You ever met somebody that had like gastric bypass, right? And then gain all their weight back? There are people that do that. They drop the weight, they do, they do the, and then they, they stay on it. Well, we think about this idea of the spiritual discipline and legalism. Legalism is like the crash diet. I'm going to fast, I'm going to read, I'm going to do this. But it's not, in, it's not written in your DNA. It's not what you're doing. Pick one thing. And do it consistently. And when you're good at it, pick another thing. Do it consistently. When you're good at it, pick another thing. But don't try to memorize the whole Old Testament in one sitting. Not going to work. So it's the practice of godliness and you just need to work at it. He goes on and he tells him in verses 9 through 11, he says, really teach the hope of the living God. Timothy, just teach the hope about Jesus. Teach the hope of the living God and Savior. Exercise yourself missionally as a teacher. Timothy, you're a teacher. Teach. Paul was planting churches based on the confident expectation. You say, Carrie, I don't know what to share with people. You, you want to know what to share? Share them this. When I die, I'm going to be in heaven. Would you like to know how I'm going to get there? Can you do that? That's a confident hope. And you can tell them that. Because that's what people need. They don't need for you to tell them the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. They need to know how to get to heaven. They need to know Jesus. Teach them what God offers. And you're teaching them from your personal conviction and experience. And just talk with them. Timothy, that's what you need to focus on. And he goes on in verses 12 to 16. He says, don't let anyone treat you with contempt because you're young. Don't let him look down. And again, as I said, he was in his 20s or 30s. People were looking down on him. You're just young. You don't know what you're talking about. And so I love what Paul says. He says, don't argue with him. Let your speech, your conduct, your love, your faith, and purity be your defense. Let your life speak. And that will shut them up. Just let your life speak. He also says, publicly teach and exhort others the same way that Paul would taught, had taught in Tyrannius in Acts 19.9. There were, there were some people that were becoming hardened and speaking evil the way, and he withdrew from them in the synagogues, took away the disciples, and spent every day in the school of Tyrannus, and he would teach. He would gather the people together. And congregation. You know, in front of my Bible, I have a saying, and I write it in all my Bibles. This book will keep me from sin. Sin will keep me from this book. Give place for public reading. Get together with people and read the Bible. Get together as you guys do. 
as, as we study scriptures within this. And don't neglect your spiritual gift that was given to you by prophecy. If you don't use your spiritual gift, it will become rusty. You'll be afraid to use it. Exercise. Your gift is meant to be exercised. 1 Timothy 1.18, he says this, This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them fight the good fight. You all have one spiritual gift. At least one. You all do. Do you know what it is? I hope you do. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, you need to find out what it is and start doing it. You say, well, I don't know what my gift is. Maybe I need to take a spiritual gift test. Okay, go ahead and take a spiritual gift test. Or, whatever you find doing that you do with great joy, do it more. And watch God work within that. Lastly, Paul goes through concerning the widows. And I would love to go through the rest of this, but we have about 40 seconds left and I don't want to rush it. So next week we're going to pick up in chapter 5 and we're going to take a look at the rest of 5, all of 5 and 6. We're going to take a look at the widows, in other words, showing respect to the old men and to the old women and how the church should take care of widows. But I want to encourage you, read through some of these. We go really fast and there's a lot of good gold nuggets that you can still iron out and pull out of this text. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity to be here and to be able to honor you and worship you. And Lord, your word is so deep and it is so so hard. And I, I feel at times that I do it injustice by, by even how fast we go through. Yet, Lord, you're the one that teaches and I pray that you would have done the teaching tonight. That Holy Spirit, you bring to our remembrance those things that we need to know and learn. May we apply them as good ministers of the gospel. Father, we thank you that you are, you are equipping us and you are building us for the work of ministry to reach the least and the lost and the marginalized. May we do that. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand as we close with this song. Worthy of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say, Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. We live for you.
God, may you do that work in our lives. Reveal yourself to us. And as you reveal yourself to us, may we reflect your glory to others. As we go out to a world that is being deceived and and walking in darkness, may you be the light of our life, bringing hope to lost generations. I thank you for our time and go before us this day. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and praise Jesus. Have a blessed day. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.